If you're listening to this podcast and you don't live in Washington, let me just say, Yuval Levin is the kind of thinker, policy analyst, public servant, and scholar you really want in D.C. From where I sit anyway, his voice is gold. If you see his byline in the future, I hope you'll make a point to read him. Yuval's scholar page is linked in the show notes with access to a bunch of his latest talks and columns. But a few biographical highlights. Yuval immigrated to the U.S. from Israel at age 19. He holds an M.A. and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought. He's worked for members of Congress at the member, committee, and leadership levels. He served in the George W. Bush administration as executive director of the President's Council on Bioethics, which combined policy scholars, theological insight, science, and medical practitioners. Yuval is also one of the only White House alumni to have been painted by a living president. Alongside 42 other Americans, he's depicted in President Bush's 2021 Book of Portraits, out of many one, honoring immigration, American diversity, and renewal. And finally, Yuval has written three landmark books and countless articles. In 2009, he founded the widely read policy journal called National Affairs. Today, he directs the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Division of the American Enterprise Institute, where he holds the same research chair previously occupied by Arthur Brooks. And the talk you're about to hear is one he gave to a group of 15 Michael Cromarty Forum journalists a highly promising group of early career journalists selected from 81 applicants and nominees. The topic is declining trust in our politics, in religion, in American journalism, and it's deeply insightful and challenging, and I hope you'll feel just as stirred by it as our group did. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much, Josh. I appreciate it. It's always nice to be part of what you all do. And I especially think back fondly to the years when Mike Cromarty would do this. Mike was my colleague for 10 years at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and an extraordinary person. I like to think this program still has a bit of his one-of-a-kind personality. And the focus, the emphasis on helping journalists get a better sense of the full diversity of American society and the dimensions of that society that aren't always obvious to people in journalism is just tremendously important. I'm very glad to be able to be part of it. There are a lot of things we could talk about. I'm glad to talk about any of them as we enter into conversation. What Josh asked me to start with is a little bit of what is in the book that you have, a book called A Time to Build that came out now two and a half years ago, three years ago almost, and that tries to think a little bit about the nature of the social crisis that Americans are living through. And so I'll say a little bit about that and, and about how it might relate to the kind of work that you do and to a question that I think has to be on the mind of anybody in and around journalism, but also in and around public policy, which is a question about the nature of trust in American society and how it can be built and sustained, especially by professionals, by people who are in the business of conveying expertise and knowledge and information, as in one way or another, all of you are. To say that we're living in a social crisis, you know, in one sense, it's obvious. In another sense, it's a little hard to make sense of. I think that it is, it's a crisis that extends well beyond the kinds of challenges we've dealt with in just the last few years around the pandemic, around race, around the insanity of our politics. All of that is part of it. But I do think that what we're looking at is a kind of social breakdown that we've been living with for longer than that, and that expresses itself 
in an unusual variety or diversity of symptoms. You can see it in everything from the bitter partisanship of our politics, the intensity of the kind of culture war we live with in every part of American life, but also in a lot of people's personal lives. It expresses itself as a kind of loneliness and isolation that has sent uh, suicide rates skyrocketing, that has led to an epidemic of opioid abuse in large parts of our society. These symptoms are clearly different from each other, and yet I think we all have a sense that they're connected somehow. And it's not always easy to put our finger on exactly how and what it is that ties them together and allows us to talk about this moment as a crisis in some coherent way. There are a lot of things we might say about what it is that might hold them together. I think a lot of us have a sense that it has to do with sociality, with how we hang together as people, with the ways in which we are connected. But the vocabulary we have for talking about social connection in American life is often a little bit thin. When we think about the kinds of problems that emerge at the intersection of American individuals, we tend to still think about individuals. We tend to imagine our society as a big open space full of individuals who are having trouble connecting now. And so we talk about building bridges, we talk about breaking down walls or leveling playing fields. These are not wrong as metaphors, they're helpful, they're part of, the, of what needs to happen. But I think that what they miss is that social life in a free society is not just a bunch of individuals trying to connect. There's also an essential element of social structure that is much harder for us as Americans to talk about. Ways in which people hang together as groups. And when we look at the terrain of American social life now, a lot of what is breaking down are not just connections among individuals, but precisely these structures. Or more importantly, when we look at American social life, it's not just a bunch of individuals. It is full of these structures of social engagement, structures which we can call institutions. Um, institution is a very broad term. It has a lot of definitions in the social sciences, but I think that we can say very broadly that institutions are the durable forms of our common life. They're the ways in which people connect with each other and hang together. An institution is geared toward a purpose, which the people within it have in common. Maybe they're there to educate children or to enforce the law or to produce some kind of good or service in the economy. Maybe they have a civic purpose or a political purpose. They're organized together around that goal and the institution gives each of them a role in relation to that purpose and in relation to one another. So maybe you're a student in a school and you have a particular connection to the principal and the teachers and the parents and ultimately the purpose of the institution provides the goal but the structure of the institution helps you know who you are in relation to those other people and how you can work together to achieve that goal. We as Americans don't like to talk about institutions. We like to imagine that we don't need them that they don't exist, we treat them as invisible, we think of what we do in society in very, very individualistic terms. But in fact, institutions are absolutely essential to everything we do together in American life. And they're essential to the formation of our personal lives too. If you ask yourself, who are the five people in your life who you know best and know you best? And then think, how do I know those people? The answer is gonna involve family and work and school maybe church, maybe some civic organization, maybe sports. All of those are institutions. If you ask yourself what's an institution, 
Think of those kinds of places. And part of what that means is that the important role that institutions play is not just in giving you a way to work together with other people, but because they're social forms, they're also formative. They shape you. They shape each of us, our character, our habits, our souls. And ultimately, what it means to be part of the work of an institution is to be shaped by it to be a particular kind of human being. We can see this in the professional world. You'll spend a few minutes talking to somebody and, and then say, what do you do? And she'll say, I'm an accountant. And you think, yeah, uh, that makes sense. You're an accountant. That's not surprising at all. And the reason is that the profession gives you a kind of shape, a kind of role. You don't always come in with it, but you come to take it on over time. And I think the way in which institutions are formative is very important for thinking about the kind of social crisis that we're living through now in American life. Because oftentimes, the ways that institutions shape us has a lot to do with why we trust them and why we trust other people in our lives. Because what it means to be shaped by an institution at some level is to be constrained, to be given a particular kind of form that answers to an idea of integrity, right? So we trust a business when it seems like it's a business that shapes the people within it to take its goal seriously, but also to achieve it with some degree of reliability, responsibility, accountability. We trust a profession when it seems like it shapes the people within it to do its work in a trustworthy way. You can obviously see this in your own profession. Part of what it means to be a journalist is to tell the wider world that you operate in a particular way, that you answer to a certain kind of ethic, of integrity, that before you say something, it's gone through a process within an institution that you're part of. And therefore, when you do say something, you're not just talking. This has been through a process of verification, and we're not just listening to you, we're listening to the entire institution that you're part of, and we have some reason to think that it can speak to us with authority. Science works the same way. When a scientist says something, it's not just a smart person talking, but rather an individual who is speaking out of a process, out of a form, out of a way of shaping knowledge before it's expressed to the broader public. A lot of what institutions do for us is that they allow us to benefit from the ways in which they build trust through formation. They say to the world, these people are not just people, these people are professionals. They're lawyers, they're doctors, they're journalists, and therefore there's a reason for you to take them seriously in the particular domain that they speak into. And I think that's important right now because a lot of the crisis of trust that we see in American life has to do with a loss of the sense among the broader public that institutions still play this role. When we listen to a scientist now, too often too many Americans think, well, that's just another person saying another thing. When we listen to journalists, I think a lot of Americans have that sense too. And it's the same in a lot of domains of American life. Some of that has to do with just the populist character of this moment. We're just not in a mood to trust anybody. But some of it also has to do with transformations within our institutions that make it harder to trust. And the crisis of trust Americans live through now is in part a crisis of trust in institutions. In a sense, that's really obvious. It's one of the best demonstrated facts in public opinion that Americans don't trust institutions. And not just that, but that we've lost trust in them over a period of decades in a very, very dramatic way. Gallup takes account of trust in institutions in a standardized way that they've done since 1948. They ask about a certain set of institutions 
they'll add one or two every now and then, but you have some questions that go back all the way to the 40s and 50s. And what you find is starting around the end of the 1960s, a collapse of trust in institutions. Every American institution, with the exception of the U.S. military, and we can talk about why that might be, is now trusted by far, far fewer Americans than was the case 50 years ago. And in many cases, the collapse has been just an absolutely dramatic, disastrous falling of trust. That's very true with regard to our governing institutions. In 1974, the year after Watergate, the year that Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace, you still had a majority of Americans expressing trust in the presidency. And now you have about a quarter of Americans expressing trust in the presidency. Trust in Congress is barely in double digits. There were a couple of years in the last decade when it was not in double digits. Trust in the professions is not as low, but it has declined very dramatically. Whether that's journalism, whether that's medicine, whether that's science, Americans don't trust professionals. One of the reasons for that loss of trust certainly has to do with just traditional kinds of measures of competence. In the 21st century in particular, Americans have lived through examples of incompetence among professionals that are hard to ignore. And again, this is especially true in our governing institutions, whether that's in Iraq, whether that's the financial crisis, whether that's the pandemic. Americans feel like they have a lot of reasons not to trust professionals. And that's part of what's going on here. Part of it is also a kind of uh, evident corruption in some institutions. Certainly, it becomes harder to trust people with power when they seem like they use that power for their own benefit. But both of these challenges, the challenge of demonstrating competence and the danger of corruption, are in a sense always with us. And they're always evident in public opinion about trust in institutions. What you really find in the 21st century, and I would say the collapse of trust has accelerated dramatically in the 21st century, is I think a different kind of dynamic that has driven a further loss of trust. And it has to do exactly with the formative purpose of institutions that I started with. I think there is, broadly speaking, a sense among a lot of people in our country that institutions are not functioning formatively now, but rather performatively. That they don't take individuals and shape them in a particular way and turn them into a member of Congress or a scientist or a corporate CEO, but rather function for those people as platforms for performance, for building a personal brand, for building a following and allow those people to stand on a platform and be visible, rather than turning them within the life of the institution into a more trustworthy kind of human being, a professional of one sort or another, or someone shaped by institutional responsibility. I think a lot of Americans have the sense that our institutions have gone from being formative to being performative, and therefore that the people within them are much harder to trust. We can see this in a lot of arenas of American life, in politics, I think it's particularly evident. I spent a lot of time with members of Congress for my sins, and it has been really a dramatic transformation to witness. A lot of members now, especially younger members, although not only younger members, have come to see the role they play in fundamentally performative terms, rather than thinking that they have entered an institution that plays a kind of purpose, and, that, and seeing that purpose in legislative terms, that is, the purpose of Congress is to compel negotiation and accommodation between people on different sides of important questions. That just is the purpose of Congress. But a lot of members don't think of themselves that way at this point, and instead see being in Congress as being on a particularly prominent platform in the culture war, being in a place that allows them an unusual amount of prominence 
and access to public attention that gains them a better time slot on cable news or talk radio and that allows them to stand on a platform and perform, to stand and yell. A lot of members now basically run to channel the frustrations of their voters by expressing them rather than by allowing them to enter into a process of bargaining and negotiation toward addressing problems in our society. And they'll run that way. They'll run saying, I'm not going to go over there and make deals with the other party. That's, I, I won't betray you. Well, making deals with the other party is the job they're running for. There are other things they could do. The, our economy provides people with plenty of opportunities to do all kinds of things. But if you're going to run for Congress, you're running to play a part in an institution whose work is bargaining. And if you're promising your voters that you won't do that, you're saying you think of your job in a very, very different way than the institution does. And you don't find a lot of members now being formed into that human type that is a member of Congress. There is such a type. It's recognizable. And some members still do this, especially members who come from state legislatures, which still does happen, particularly among the Democrats. There are people who have risen in politics as legislators and actually still have an idea of what that means. But increasingly, younger members of Congress do not operate that way, do not think that way. They measure themselves by performative standards, and they understand their place in the institution that way. If you attend a congressional hearing now, you're watching people produce YouTube clips. Rather than engage with one another or with a witness who they've called, you'll see, in particularly high-profile hearings, you'll see members, one after another, ask this poor person the same question. And why do you need to ask it again? He just answered it when that person asked it. Well, because you need a clip of you asking that question. You're basically there producing internet entertainment. I think we've seen something like that process happen around the presidency, not just in the Trump years, though certainly especially in the Trump years, but a sense that the president's role also is fundamentally performative, that that's the highest stage in the culture war and that that's what it means to be president, rather than operating from within the system and kind of working the executive branch to achieve traditional political goals, we find our presidents now standing on the executive branch and delivering messages. I think the courts have resisted this better than most, and they've done this in ways that we can learn from. The courts, for the most part, have resisted cameras. You have this now in some federal appeals courts, but certainly not in the Supreme Court. They've maintained spaces that are still private, arenas for deliberation. And that's their role. Congress has entirely lost these private arenas for deliberation. There's almost nowhere to go except the leadership offices at midnight before a government shutdown to just have a conversation that isn't being watched by other people. And that's why all the work gets done in the leadership offices at midnight before a government shutdown, because the kind of work they do cannot happen entirely in public. And if everything they do is entirely in public, then they cannot do their work. You find a lot of members in both houses saying their favorite part of the job is participating in the work of the Intelligence Committee. Well, that work is terrifying and difficult, but it is also private. And it's a place where they get to say, I don't know about this. Tell me more about it, which you could never do in a public hearing. It's a place where they actually get to know their fellow members of Congress. And there's a lesson to learn there. There's a lesson to learn about how institutions function. But I think in some ways we see the same thing operating in a lot of institutions outside of politics. There's obviously a version of it in journalism where rather than working through an institution and benefiting from the capital, the trust capital that it provides, we find a lot of journalists now on Twitter operating as individuals 
and doing work that is indistinguishable from just the expression of their personal opinions. Some of it is very valuable. They're actually doing real reporting and providing a lot of information, but it is very hard to tell apart from personal expression. And that means that it is very hard to trust and that it makes the work of journalists in general harder to trust when we just know them too well. We see too many facets of them that are not their professional selves. It makes it much harder to have confidence in the work they do. I think you find the same kind of thing happen in corporate America. You find it happening in the religious world where institutions that are fundamentally there to shape and form souls are being used instead for political expression and to sort of prove that you're in this party and not in that party. And you see the same kinds of cultural deformations happening there that you find in Congress, a kind of celebrity culture that emerges around the leaders of religious communities that ultimately ends up treating the church as a platform, as a stage. The same kind of thing is happening in the academic world, which again, you have an institution that is there to advance knowledge through teaching and learning, but that instead becomes a platform for expression. And expression is not the same as teaching and learning. Expression is not the same as civic action and political action. And I think we too often now mistake the two and think that when we've said something, we've done something. And it's not true. When you've said on, on Twitter or TikTok that you agree with this or that, you haven't changed the world at all. And I think we've come to see in this moment, in this period in American life, we've come to see expression as action to a, a dangerous degree. And we sort of reflect this back on our understanding of American history too. When people want to express a strong political view now or opposition to something in our politics, there's a tendency to recreate the appearance of a protest movement, but without the underlying institutional infrastructure of a protest movement. So you just show up on the street with signs, and then it all dissipates and goes nowhere. And we think we've done something like the civil rights movement of the 60s, but you know what? The civil rights movement was not fundamentally about holding up signs. Bringing a million people to Washington in the summer of 63 was a way of saying, we can bring a million people to the voting booth in November of 64. And it was understood that way. It was a way of showing organizational power, not a way of expressing opinion. And I think some of our technologies and a lot of our cultural evolution has meant that we've lost sight of the difference between expression and action. But more importantly, that we've lost the ability to have real trust in people within our institutions because we think they're all fundamentally involved in expression. And we think that what there is to know about them is what party they're in and what their view is on this issue or that issue. And I think a lot of professionals in American life operating out of good motives, of wanting to show that they're on what they take to be the right side of an important question have made it very difficult for people to have confidence in the work they do because they just seem like they're political activists. And so in wanting to say, our company also believes in this or that, in, in abortion rights or voting rights, what they're saying to voters is, you can't really buy shoes from us anymore because we're on the other side of a big divide. And that makes it very, very hard to work together in a free society because part of what it means to live in a diverse society is to always be engaged in common action with people you don't agree with. That's, there's no avoiding that. There's no way around that. And you have to be able to trust them that even though they might be on the other side of a big issue from you, they're still going to treat you in the right way within the boundaries of the work of the institution that they're part of. 
losing that is losing a lot. And I think it's not only meant that we've lost a lot, but because it operates through this dynamic of institutional work, it means that it's been hard for us to understand the nature of what we've lost, and therefore hard for us to understand the nature of the social crisis we're living through. It's part of why all these different symptoms seem to connect in ways that are not evident to us, that are not obvious to us, because they happen in a terrain that we often treat as invisible and frequently don't see. I think when you see it a little better, the natural question is, what can we do about it? And there's no easy answer to that because of the nature of the problem. Ultimately, we have to gradually rebuild our trust in institutions in American life and our capacity to have trust in institutions. And the hard thing about that is that it doesn't begin by talking about what other people should be doing better. It begins by each of us, ourselves, wherever we are and in whatever institutions we are part of, doing a little better on this front and forcing ourselves in important moments of action or decision to ask a basic question that goes unasked now in American life, which is given my role here, how should I behave? Given that I am a member of Congress or a teacher or a journalist or the President of the United States, what's required of me in this situation? Not just what do I want, but given the role I have, what should I do? That's a question that I think has become a lot less natural to a lot of us. It's a constraining question because often the answer is not just what you want to do, but what's required of you given the obligations you have, the responsibilities you have, the privileges you have, the power you have. We all ask this question now and then in our personal lives. Someone will cut me off on the highway and I'll want to scream what I think of them and then remember there's kids in the back and I'm just not going to do that. That's a little bit like what's missing in a lot of American life. And we often find ourselves looking at people and thinking, He's the president of the United States. How is he doing that? Well, the fact is he just didn't ask himself the question, what should I do given that I'm the president? Constantly we find ourselves asking that sort of question about people in all kinds of positions. And I think beginning by asking ourselves, given my role here, what's required of me, and then demanding the same of other people might help us to understand what we're missing, what we need to push for, what we need to do differently. And then can also help us understand how institutions need to change. And I do want to say it's important to see that institutions need to change. The problem we face is not just that Americans don't trust institutions, but that institutions are not trustworthy enough. And there are a lot of ways, of course, in which what it means to make them more trustworthy is not just to build up the public's confidence in them, it's to make them more trustworthy. It's to reform them and change them in ways that make them more worthy of our confidence. There are a lot of reasons why Americans don't trust institutions. It's not ridiculous. It's not silly. Institutions can be very constraining and restricting. They can limit our, our freedom of action. Sometimes they are, in fact, literally oppressive. A term like institutional racism, that's not a metaphor in America. That's a reality for a lot of people. And it's crucially important to see that powerful institutions are very dangerous and that we do need to think about how to restrain them and constrain them. There are a lot of times when the problem in American life is that our institutions are too powerful, even too trusted. I think you look at America in the middle of the 20th century, and that's a society with too much trust in its institutions. But where we're living now, we're a society with too little trust. And we have to think about how to regain our capacity to build the trust of our fellow citizens and also to build our own trust in the various institutions we're part of. 
And so beginning by asking ourselves what we can do differently has to lead us to think about how we can change institutional structures and incentives. Incentives really matter. Those members of Congress are not idiots. They're very intelligent men and women. They're responding in smart ways to the incentives they face. And the incentives they face are the problem. And that means we've got to think about political reform. We've got to think about structural reform in a variety of institutions, in the academy and in the church and in journalism and in every place that matters to us. We have to ask ourselves, how do we make it reasonable and rational for people with power in this institution to actually behave responsibly? And that will require a lot of change. But to begin with, I think it just requires seeing the problem in this particular way and thinking about responsibility and about trust and about accountability in ways that take account of the nature of American institutions. I think that's one way to see the breadth of what has gone wrong and the depth of it, and to afford ourselves some ways to take action, some ways to do more than just stand around and think, boy, all these people are really doing a terrible job. We need different people in politics or in the business world. We have to go one layer further and ask ourselves how we get there and what it is we expect of them. And I think thinking in institutional terms can help us do at least a little more of that. For part two of the conversation, check out the YouTube link in the show notes with another 30 minutes of back and forth between Yuval and the gathered group of reporters, editors, and columnists. Faith Angle connects top clerics and scholars with top journalists. Thanks for listening.